0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room like Arts and Minds. My only regret is that Bruce is not here, because a lot of that he said, particularly about how to deal with the issues of trauma, etc. it would have been wonderful if mine had been, you know, in a way we could have interacted, but he had to go. Um, and you can see the subtitle, Memory, Memory Work, and Narratives of Freedom and Conflict. Uh, why do I take up oral history or memory work in the summer school on crisis of democracy, well, very simply because this practice, this method, I think, is particularly opposite for to document and then further even to analyze ongoing social phenomena, that is, contemporary events. In this case, democracy and its crises and discontents. Now, uh, it's divided into three parts: the presentation. In the first part is about oral history, the practice, the method, how it evolved, uh, some of the questions which get raised of a both ethical and practical nature, and about how oral history is particularly tuned to giving a voice to the marginalized. In the second section, I take up an oral history project on what I'm calling the voices of freedom, which I was part of and it's Again, very fortunate that Mr. and Aditya are also here because they were part of the six-member group which was there. And the third part, I'm talking about oral histories of partition, where I take up some of the bigger issues, the wider issues, to do with trauma and oral history, memory work, the dialectic between remembering and forgetting, the imperative of remembering, or bearing witness versus the other model of silence as a sanctuary. And last of all, I'm going to talk about mourning the dead, or what I think is the importance of that. Um, Well, very, very quickly, we know that oral history as a practice goes back to the United Kingdom, to the History Workshop Journal, which really took it up as part of what is also called a movement for history from below. So people like Ralph Samuel, uh, who worked on on labor and working class, E.P. Thompson, the legendary historian of the English working class, and many others. But I'm just flagging it as that was like the first major breakthrough in this area. Now, some of the questions, you'll see there are a lot of questions in this presentation, rather than answers, which is what I should be, is about questions like, Is memory reliable? This is the kind of question you get all the time. Is individual testimony representative? Can we take it as representative of a group? How does one handle, and this is a huge question, the relationship, which is a very unequal one, between the professional historian and the participant or respondent in the oral history project? We did talk a bit about it. Day before yesterday with Bruce. Now, from the beginning, oral history um, has got linked with giving voice to the marginalized. That is, it has got associated with writing the history of the oppressed. Alessandro Portelli, perhaps one of the most well known pro- practitioners of oral history, has talked about this how we are able to amplify as calls it the voice of the historically silenced. And the world over, the history of the marginalized groups and communities is very much something which is linked with the practice of oral history. Now, how does this quite happen? It's not only that you're picking up a particular group. It's also the method of oral history. That is the whole process of memory work. Where you are empowering the oppressed by taking them through the process of remembering. This actually should be a hyphen between re and memory. That is because it's really memory, which is in a way remembering. You know, that word is very important. And reinterpreting their past, which gives a huge sense of empowerment. And I'll talk about one or two examples of that in a minute. Also, as far as the historian is concerned, or the person who's the interviewer, this can be a hugely transformative experience, as many of us have found in our own lives, where there are a series of exchanges in which the activist historian, well, I know this word, activist historian, we have a lot of discussion on this, advocacy, scholarship, Rosemary is here, sheds her stereotype thinking. And at the same time, the interviewee also recognizes the value of her experience. And you'll be shocked by how very often it's the case that there is no value given to that experience. And I'll again take up an example of that in a minute. So it's a transformative relationship that we're talking about between both researcher and the subject. Now, Paul Thompson, who's done this very good book called A Voice from the Past, many of you would be familiar with it, he put it very well. He's talking about what oral history did to the field of history. And I'm just putting a sentence where he said, today the testimony of artisans about their traditional practices is deemed as relevant as worthy of preservation as the words of Grand. So there is this whole thing. Um, however, one should not also make oral history, and many oral historians have warned of this, a kind of ghetto of the oppressed. That is, it should not be, and needn't be, uh, as it was in the past 20 years, deal only with the marginalized. And it can potentially deal with other groups in society. And now there's a lot of work on that. So it, there are many approaches to oral history. There is, I'm just taking up two of them very quickly, the life story method. This is perhaps now the most recognized method, which is that even if, for say example, uh, all of us in this room will go out to interview citizens of Dubrovnik or uh, residents of Sarajevo in the next few days about trauma and about their experiences, say, of 1991, to put it very practically, the advice is, don't just go there with a, with a, with a mic microphone and say, okay, now, where were you on the night of 91? What happened? What's the trauma you felt? <laughs> well, you're, you're very likely to get a standard answer, a very cliched standard answer. And we found this in our own experience, particularly with people who were political and had huge political well, careers. For example, people in the Communist Party in India, where they would just straight give you the party line, you know, because there's a party line and you straight get it. Okay, so what about 1942? And they tell you about how the Soviet Union came in, to the war, and now it became a people's war. So we all did that. Now, we know that in practice, many of them had huge questions about that. And actually, they weren't following that line. We knew from other sources. But this is what the method is all about, and that's why it's great. You take them back. It's a freewheeling interview, beginning with childhood, so you encourage a person to get, go back to the very beginning, as it were. And then you've gone back in time, and then they move through their life as it were. And when that happens, something which is called the fallacy of hindsight then doesn't come into operation. Right? Then you are, in a way, to the extent it's possible, moving through your life and experiencing it, perhaps, as far as it's possible to do so by as it, as it were. Memory workshops, which I'm not going to talk about, but I'm just flagging, they are very popular today, particularly for groups where there has been collective trauma and where collective sites of witnessing, collective sites of sharing. For example, in the women's movement, particularly in Latin America and other places, these have been hugely Successful And in India, also, we learned a lot from this example. I'll come to that in a minute. Now, um, this is about the Irish Troubles. I'm just flagging how this is now recognized in many areas. This is from the Irish Troubles. Again, Hackett and Hallstrom, who've done one of the best books on this, who, who talked about how we began interview collection by interviewing people affected by defining events that is 1969 1971 hunger Strikes, 1881 interview parent method and then we began to adopt a life story approach to interviews asking people about their early years and moving the interview through their life so what I'm again flagging here is that even for and I like even for trauma, situations, even for recording testimonies of trauma, you might have to, or it might be a great idea, to go back in time. Now, there's a recent digital initiative, uh, which is working across South Asia, transcending boundaries, called the 1947 Partition Archive. You can just Google it. And it started as a small little startup in Berkeley and with a woman who was a physicist, an Indian woman who said, oh, all the people are gonna die and I have to do something. And now it's huge and it's, a, it's amazing. And when I say they transcend borders they, because they don't need visas, it's all done on Skype. And they have been, like their work is phenomenal in one respect, which is that they have connected families across the borders because, you know, people have actually been reunited with their families through these interviews. OK, so they also have written about how they go back and they talk about the whole life story. Interview always ends where they are today. So they are brought back. This is also very important. It's not just going back in time. But you can't just leave them there somewhere. They're brought back to how they had the strength to carry on. Now that process is also very important, which is different from closure and I'll come to that in a minute. For us, this was these were two of the big takeaways from the project that we had done, which I'm going to just talk about, which is that memory was very sharp for childhood. And this, again, when we read up some of the stuff on in medicine, we found this is a well-known fact, that people who have Alzheimer's, people who don't remember anything about where they left their keys uh, you know, 10 minutes ago, crystal sharp memory of childhood. And we go somewhere and we be told, oh, you've come too late, person doesn't remember a thing, and we say, okay, oh, it doesn't matter since we've come so far, we might as well chat with him, and then we start talking, and my God, you have everything comes <laughs> out about, you know, the first 20, 30 years of their life. Um, and again, what I just mentioned, there's no fallacy of hindsight. There's no, you know, kind of you're not looking back on your life from today and reading it, but it's life from the bottom up. So this we thought were two great things. Now, the second part of where I move on to, this is about the project that we did, recording testimonies. This was way back in the 1980s. Professor Bipin Chandra, who was one of our well-known historians in JNU, and a group of professors, in, in, uh, and who were part of those professors, I was a researcher, the sort of, not unpaid, but kind of grateful researcher was around. I was finishing my PhD, and I didn't want to teach because then I would never finish a PhD. So I was given this, what I was told was, it would just be a couple of hours in, you know, a day, and it took over my life. because years. I did nothing else. So, uh, so we were, this was kind of first of its kind oral history project in India. And we went around the country, different parts, recording the testimonies of activists in the anti-colonial movement. Different political spe- across the political spectrum. People, Gandhian socialist activists of the peasants or workers movement. Um, there were many rounds. Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Andhra, that's South India. Then Western India, Maharashtra, and Gujarat. Then a round in Uttar Pradesh, which is what we call the cow bells, the center of India, and fourth in the northwest of India in Punjab, the fifth in Bihar. And this was for three years, 84 to 87. But other than this, we interviewed people. Whenever somebody turned up somewhere and we could, it kind of went on. So total of maybe about 1,500 interview, odd interviews spanning over double the number of hours uh, which were there. This map should have been larger. So it's quite useless right now, really. But this is just to, yeah. I think that's Kerala, uh, Andhra, Tamil Nadu. That's the south. That's the first round. There's Maharashtra and Gujarat the next year. This is Uttar Pradesh, this large red patch. Uh, There's Punjab here, right on the border with Pakistan. And then there's Bihar. Sorry for the map. Um, now, all the interviews were recorded, and this was, again, something which is very important for us to remember, how few people objected to being recorded, because we thought we are intruding into their space, into their memory, we had all kinds of interviews, and we would ask, do you, after a while, do you think we could record this? Of course, of course you could record it, you know? It's almost as if people were sometimes, I would even say, waiting for us to come so that they could just tell their story and then maybe, I hate to say it, but maybe just rest in peace. Um, So once in a while, somebody would say, okay, this is confidential, so just switch off the recorder. But most people wanted their testimonies to be recorded. So there was this sense what Elie Weasel, who has this you know, heartbreaking book of Holocaust survivor uh, called Bearing Witness. He, he passed away three, four days ago, so it's like a tribute to him. Um, and so th- there was this sense that we need to put this down for posterity, OK? Um, this is an example. I'm just going to read it out very quickly, this story of an interview that i did in guntur this is the chilli town uh, of india in south india in the summer of 1984 along with shanta sinha uh, this the lady was padathi amma she was about 84 years old very frail she sat in a small unkempt room we all sat on the floor she spoke in telugu which shanta was translating of how as a young girl She went for a meeting addressed by Gandhi and touched by his appeal for funds for the movement. She was just 11. She took off her gold bangles, and she gave them to Gandhi. As we recorded her life story, one by one, members of her family came and sat at the side of the room on a bench. This included her son, who had not spoken to her in years in anger at her having given away first, of course, her gold bangles and later on, all her land to the movement which had been led by her auntie. She broke down, overwhelmed at her newfound status in the family as someone who mattered, not because of what she had done, but as she saw it, but because outsiders like us found her story to be of merit. Shanta Parvatiya and I together wept in joy, each other, Pardhati Amma's recounting of her past, her story, had restored agency to her. Mm -hmm. Oral sources or oral testimonies we found were particularly suited for certain kinds of history or certain aspects of history of the freedom struggle which we were looking at. For example, there were no colonial records available on very vital aspects of the movement, such as how did mobilization of people take place? How do you go around, how do you mobilize for a meeting? Who who pays for it? What is the funds? The debates which take place at different points. None of this, as I said, would come in the official written records. And here is where we were able to reconstruct a lot of this on the basis of the oral testimonies. Just to give another example, this was again Usha Mehta, who later on became very famous to the professor of political science at Bombay University till very recently. And uh, she was very famous in 1942 during what we call the Quit India movement during the Second World War, where she used to run an illegal radio. So they used to just uh, hook on to the Japanese radio and then relate wherever they could. And then they just pick it up, and they run to the next place before they can be caught. So she became very famous for that. Now, Usha Mehta told us this lovely story about how, in Surat, this is in Gujarat, how a group of girls, they made dresses from the national flag. They stitched the national flag into a dress, and they wore it. It's a very ingenious way of ensuring that the policeman couldn't take the flags away, they couldn't grab it from them. And she explained it as that Jawaharlal Nehru, the Congress leader and president in 1929 of the Congress, he had given this call. He said, once this flag is unfurled, it must not be lo- lowered as long as a single Indian, man, woman, um, or child lives in India. So this is a great example of what I'm calling like grassroots initiative. There, there, was, there were huge examples of of this. Now, another aspect of this freedom struggle, uh, which we got huge information about, again, this would never be there in the uh, records, was about government officials and the role that they played. For example, many of these government officials, including jailers, would tell us about how they would shelter activists who were on the run. They provided information to them about their impending arrests, and they even gave money. And there were many dramatic examples of this which were there. So this whole process of the erosion uh, of the authority of the colonial officials in the late colonial state, how this is happening, how they are turning to the natural uh, movement Rather than being loyal to the colonial state, a factor which was very important in the decision of the British to leave India was because they eventually found that their whole, the pillars of the Raj, as they call them, were crumbling. So this entire aspect is something that we could get huge uh, amount of information about. Okay, now I come to the third and last part of my presentation. around the time of the 50th anniversary of India's independence and partition. That's, I'm talking about 1990s. Now, in India, particularly, and beginning with feminist scholars, beginning with women's groups, many stories began to be collected uh, about partition. And here, the argument that was being given was that for 50 years, we had only about freedom, we had been celebrating freedom and we had ignored what was called the dirges, the sad songs of partition. So the critique was coming from many quarters, and one of the critiques that was very tough at that time was that the state had imposed a silent silent war. That is, the state was, there was a kind of imposed, um, uh, Neglect of partition being deliberate because the stories of partition upset this stated narrative of state's narrative of our women, our nation, etc. And Urvashi Butalia, Ritu and Kamla Bhasin, many others. I'm just mentioning a few. Uh, they even went as far as to argue that the state in India post independence was communal and patriarchal in this sense that when they went about recovering abducted women. From the other side of the border, there was this whole process by which Hindu women who had now found themselves in Pakistan and Muslim women who were in India that they were exchanged, people who had been abducted and possibly married, etc. So the whole argument went that this was, you know, a double kind of tragedy for the women, etc. Now, the I can't go into this very complicated issue here of the state and the relationship. All I want to say here is uh, just flag an issue of methodology. So, which is that what I found was that the perspective of the memory work related to the Holocaust—that is, the assumption that the women in question were victims. This and they were totally lacking in agency; that they were at the behest of the state. I found this quite a questionable assumption. And of course, the feminist scholarship is right when they draw our attention to their plight. But many people have also argued and pointed out that the state was under pressure from the community to recover these women. I know in my own family, for example, my parents came across from what is now Lahore in Pakistan in 1947. We had a family friend, and 10 years, I couldn't believe this, 10 years after partition, he went in with some liaison officer of the Indian Army, and you know, he heard that his sister who had been abducted was somewhere, and he brought her back. Of course, we didn't know that she was abducted. I had been hassling my mother, tormenting her for years. How is it that you have no story here? Here am I a researcher and participant? You're a partition-affected person. How is it you have no stories? And one time kind of she got very like she fed up and she said, okay, go and talk to Janakandi. X, Y, Z. So I said, why? And we knew this lady as a spinster. She all our lives. We had no idea about her background. We didn't know she had been abducted. She had made a new life for herself here. And then when I heard about it, I just kept said, I'm going to now go there and bring it all back for her and then what is going to be her life here when people come to know and it really set me thinking, you know, and obviously I didn't know. But I just said that this is also this perspective that you also need to keep in mind about. Also, women were not always victims. They were often agents exercising control over their lives and when placed in new contexts facing challenges. And many of the interviews that we did that do bring this out. And this comes out also a lot in the fiction on partition. Now, this is something which Bruce had talked about, the imperative of remembering also. Again, I have a problem. This is clearly being borrowed, as it were, from Holocaust studies and counterposed in a rather simplistic way, I feel, to science. Bhutalia's book, for example, is called The Other Side of Silence, right? Um, Pandey, in Pandey's book, is called Remembering Partition. However, as we know from our experience of collecting testimonies, silence and forgetting are often individual strategies of coping and surviving. Vina Das, the well-known anthropologist, in her book, Life and Words, Violence and the Descent into the Ordinary, I'm just quoting a sentence from her, she tells it reminds <coughs> us that even when it came to the Holocaust and the work around that they did, she said, before monuments of memory, lovely phrase, were built to the Shoah, that is the Holocaust, a long period of silence had to be gone through. Debate over its significance and its place in the heritage of the West developed very slowly. So it's not just simply about remembering. Many years ago, uh, Bodh had today mentioned Tamas, the book. Bhishan Sani, the well-known Hindi writer, I was interviewing him once many years ago on, on radio. And uh, he said to me, I asked him, I said, Bhishan you were an eyewitness to partition. You lived through those years. How come you wrote this novel? in 1973, 25 years later. And he said, I'm just quoting a sentence, he said, I couldn't have written it a day earlier. There was a lot of coming to terms that had to be gone through. Now, going back to Holocaust studies, again, the element of healing through remembering. This is a word we often encounter about catharsis, survivors going through that, the therapeutic effect of it. Now, here again, in India we must, we did recognize that there were huge resources which the project had. And there there were professional psychiatrists working with the people who were giving testimonies, who would then be taken through the whole process and, you know, they understood what it meant to relive trauma and to come back to their normal lives, as it were. But in the case of India, testimonies of the survivors of the Indian Partition, this was all being done in a very non-professional way. And I, 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 I'm not. There's no time to give you examples, but I know of many cases where people who talked about it, you know, a researcher just coming and talking about it, spent sleepless nights, basically there wasn't what we're calling closure. So the challenge is how do you find a way of remembering, of telling, of listening, where you reach closure. Now, within memory, too, remembering gets privileged, as we can see in this whole Holocaust framework, in contradistinction to forgetting, whereas we know that there is a dialectic between the two. The kind of poles that you can move between. But you forget some, you remember some. I am not going into this here, but I think those of you are familiar with Ernest Renan, mm-hmm. uh, with his essay, uh, the ph- philologist, historian, French, who wrote this brilliant essay in 1882 called What is a Nation? Uh, about the making of the French nation, where he is, he flags and he underlines the importance of. So by by forgetting meaning putting behind you the massacres of the Middle Ages in terms of what happened in France. Otherwise, he said, we couldn't live together. You know, It's a very interesting piece that he he talks about. So memory of conflict can have two possible trajectories. We can leave the victims and the perpetrators in remembered histories of violence and trauma, which, of course, is not what we want to do, And this is important. Memory can play a role in transcending the divide between communities locked in conflict. The very collection of testimonies can help transcend this dyad between the perpetrator and the victim. Also, and this is a point I am happy to take questions on, but I haven't gone into detail here, that when you reposition these stories, these earlier silent stories, into a collective phase, uh, place of witnessing. Let's say it all comes out in a memory workshop, and when you place them alongside memories of non-conflict, of everyday life, so it's not like trauma, 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 but what life is normally about, which is (coughs) a bit of everyday, a bit of trauma, a bit of this, a bit of that, then the kind of then what you have developing is the notion of, which comes from feminist scholarship again a lot, the notion of the survivor. No longer the notion of a victim. And how do you find a way out of this to bring a closure? I'm just ending now, Stephanie has been very kind, uh, with the tendency in many societies, including ours, of keeping your story, your grief, and I'm looking at grief to yourself, and here again, I'm referring to Northern Ireland. I've been doing this comparative um, history of Northern Ireland, the Irish troubles, and the Indian partition, um, you know, courtesy um, the Trinity Room Hub. So I acknowledge them here. Um, so as a victim of, as a member of the victim support group uh, called Wade in Northern Ireland put it, uh, part of our problem is that we have been brought up in a culture in which, where we didn't tell our stories. When my father was shot in 1969, you did not tell your story. You kept it in house, you dealt with it. This was a deposition which was, he was quoting a witness in the House of Commons in the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee 2005 publication. So this quotation is from Northern Ireland, but when we look at India too and the Indian partition, From my own experience, I know that many a family would have a parent or a grandparent who had a memory which was troubling and which she was unable to share with someone or let it go. The memory imprisoned her or him in its grip. Sometimes it was only death that freed the person with a deathbed confession to witnessing a crime, being part of a killing, or worse, I'm not, this is actually, I'm paraphrasing uh, an example from my own life where my father-in-law, uh, this is exactly what happened to him, but I will not talk about it in more detail. Um, the last slide, it's a very, uh, it's a photograph, uh, it's a painting from this, uh, Satish Kudral is one of our very famous painters, and this is a picture of a woman this is from Punjab and it's called mourning omas so this is women who are and you can see at the back the black hoods like that those are also women so this would be the typical image or the thing it's like sorry did i just take it up yeah well just so that it's very clear something you know like it's just like this this would be the typical Sort of way that people would wear a dupatta in case very often in Punjab. And here, the idea is that they're all sitting together and their bodies are very close, as you can see. And uh, there would be very often when they are walking to the place where somebody has died, then there would be a kind of veil and a, you know, a mourning which was very much there. I'm just showing this image as. Um, to suggest perhaps that maybe along with the telling of the stories, maybe there's some bit of mourning the dead or grieving perhaps that there may be in order or it may be a process that we needs to go through. Thank you very much. we